Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Hawthorne, a brand new sponsor to The Peter Schiff Show. Hawthorne is a premium, tailored personal care brand that's making it easy for guys to feel and smell their best. Take Hawthorne's quiz today and get started on your personalized self-care routine by going to hawthorne.co and using the promo code GOLD and get 10% off on your first purchase. Speaking about off... U.S. stock markets were down a bit today. I think at one point, the Dow Jones was down almost 450 points. It did get a little bit of a bounce going into the close, managed to close down 317. All of the indexes were negative on the day. I think the talk was about a resurgence in COVID cases and more talk about uh, companies or states locking down and and people staying at home. In fact, one of the news stories that was making the rounds had to do with Dr. Michael Osterholm. And this guy is a director of the Center of Infectious Disease Research. And he's also now on Joe Biden's coronavirus transition team. So this guy is supposedly going to be advising Uh, President-elect Biden, assuming the uh, election is not uh, overturned and Biden is sworn in as the 46th president, which is the most likely outcome. So Biden's the president uh, January of next year. And this guy Osterholm is advising him on what to do. And what this guy is advocating 
is a four to six week complete lockdown. Now, I'm not really sure when this is supposed to start, uh, you know, maybe late January, February. I'm not really sure uh, or if he wants us to just lock down right now. But obviously it's not happening uh, while Trump is still president. But what he thinks is that this would be great for the economy, right? Shutting down the economy for four to six weeks, according to this guy, would, you know, would really let us jumpstart the economy because we'd really eradicate the disease, even though there's really no proof that a lockdown is really going to do anything. But what this genius is proposing, right, is that, well, you know, it's not going to hurt the economy because according to this guy, right, I guess, you know, he's not just a COVID advisor, I guess he's an economic advisor too. But what he's saying is, hey, we'll just have the federal government pay everybody, right? So everybody who gets a four to six week vacation, the government will just pay your salary, now, obviously, you know, there must be some kind of cap, right? They're not going to pay the CEO's salaries or, you know, people that are making millions and millions of dollars a year. So obviously there's some type of cutoff, but people making 40, 50, 60, 80,000 a year or something like that, obviously he probably means that they're going to get fully paid. So the whole nation just takes a paid vacation and the government just uh, writes everybody a check. All the small business owners are going to get paid, right? So nobody actually lose out. And, and therefore, this is supposedly going to be great. I mean, this is a type of nonsense that actually gets discussed now because everybody thinks, well, you know, it doesn't matter because the federal government is going to pay for it. Now, of course, the federal government doesn't have any money, right? The federal government is broke. In fact, we got the numbers today for the October deficit, all-time record high. The budget deficit just in the month of October, right? This is just one month, $274.5 billion. That's one month. I mean, not too long ago, that was what the debt was for the entire year. Now we're racking it up in one month. And just to show you what's going on, if you just compare it to last month, September, right, government spending increased by 4.8% from September to October. Why? If the economy is getting better, why does the government have to spend even more money? You would think if we were really recovering, the government would have to supply less support to the economy. The fact that the government is even spending more is indicative of a weak economy that is in need of more government support, as if the government support actually works. But I think more important as far as assessing the strength of the recovery, to the extent that there is a recovery, look at the revenues. Revenues actually declined by 3.2%. So the government is collecting less money in October than it did in September. Why? If the economy is coming back, right, why aren't they collecting more? Why isn't a strengthening economy filling the government's coffers with more tax revenue? The fact that government spending is going up and tax receipts are going down, if anything, it shows you that there is no recovery, that the economy is relapsing. In fact, we got the weekly jobless numbers, as we do every Thursday morning, and we got another big number. Now, of course, the numbers are coming down. Last week, there were 757,000 new uh, initial uh, jobless claims filed. That was a slightly upward revision from the 751,000 that was initially reported. And this last week, 
it was 709,000, which is better than the 737,000 expected. Although who knows, you know, they may revise this one up too next week, but still more than 700,000 new claims for unemployment. Well, if the economy is recovering, why are so many people still losing their jobs? Remember, this is still a big number. I mean, everybody likes to uh, use a million as the new benchmark because for a while, right, we were having more than a million claims a week being filed. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it was below a million and that became good news. Look, 700,000 people losing their jobs, that's bad news. In fact, the four-week moving average is still 755,000.25 new unemployment claims being filed. So people are still losing their jobs in very large numbers. And that's before we have another uh, shutdown of the economy. But of course, getting back to this guy Osterholm's recommendation of, you know, giving everybody a four to six week paid vacation, who's not going to be in favor of that? I mean, most people who have lousy jobs that they don't like, if they have the prospect of having a four to six week paid vacation, I mean, sure, why wouldn't they want it? It's all free, right? And as I just said, the government is broke. We're already running these massive deficits. And this guy is saying, hey, the government will just pay everybody's salary while they take a vacation. Where is this money going to come from? Oh, well, we'll just borrow it. Well, who's going to be dumb enough to lend it to us? Nobody. That's why the Federal Reserve is going to have to print all this money, as if all this money printing isn't going to do any damage to the economy. In fact, all the money that would have to be printed so that the entire nation could take four to six weeks off, that money printing is going to do far more economic damage than what the damage would be from COVID-19 which of course is not gonna be eradicated by this uh, four to six week lockdown, it's still gonna be there. But even if the lockdown ends up, you know, somewhat bending the curve and saving some lives, is it really gonna be worth the cost? In fact, who knows how many more people may die as a result of not only the lockdown, but of the economic damage done by all the money the Fed has to print to support the lockdown. Look, if we're actually going to lock everything down and people are going to stay home for four to six weeks, the federal government can't pay them. People have to realize that if this is a sacrifice, then everybody has to make the sacrifice. Families are going to have to figure out how to survive for four to six weeks without a paycheck. That should be the reality. You know, during World War II, we had to fight World War II. The whole nation didn't get paid you know, while they were on fighting World War II. I mean, I guess the soldiers got paid because they went off to fight, but the rest of America, they just had to figure out how they were going to deal with it. They got stuck with not only the cost of fighting the war, but they had to deal with the economic consequences of so many people being, you know, at war and, and families not having the income uh, to, to spend that they used to. That's what should have to happen. Now, if individual states, if they want to figure out how to, provide some kind of relief for their businesses or their individuals and families, then the states can do it, but figure out how to pay for it. It's because everybody thinks that they get a free lunch from the government because they think as long as the Fed prints the money, we all can have whatever we want and there's no cost. And by the way, 
What about all the people that don't get a paid vacation? Because after all, somebody's got to work, right? Somebody is going to have to be doing these so-called essential services. So what are they, I mean, what are they going to get? How do they get the short end of the stick, right? There are going to be a lot of people that are going to actually have to go to work, right? I mean, we have to get food. The people in the food service industry, they still have to work. But they still have to, we still have to get meals. You know, why are they having to work while everybody else is getting a getting a vacation? So the whole thing is ridiculous. But to think that we can all just stop producing. Nobody has to help produce goods. Nobody has to provide services. Yet we can all get paid as if we were still working. Well, where's all the stuff going to come from? Right? I mean, who's providing the services? Now, maybe some of those people, unfortunately for them, right, they're going to have to keep working. But what about all the goods, all the goods that aren't going to be produced, right? Well, I guess we'll just run even bigger trade deficits than the record trade deficits were already running. The other problem with this asinine idea is let's say we actually had four to six weeks off. Who's to say that after six weeks, COVID is gone? I mean, what if six weeks turns into eight weeks and then eight weeks turns into 10 weeks? I mean, there certainly isn't going to be a big push uh, from voters demanding to go back to, to work. I mean, if they're going to keep getting paid not to work, well, then why should they want to work? If they could just collect their paychecks without having to go to work, then, you know, why work? I mean, why deal with the hassle? Why get up early in the morning, you know, shower, you know, put your makeup on if you're a woman, do your hair, get in traffic, commute back and forth. If you could get the same amount of money or more and not have to deal with any of that and not have to deal with a boss that you may not like. I mean, what if you have a job where you're, you know, you're dealing with customers and they, you know, they're, you just don't like it. I mean, you don't have to deal with any of that if you just stay at home. Right. Or you don't even have to stay at home. You could go someplace else. Right. You could go to the beach, although I guess not during the wintertime. Depends on where you live. Uh, but there's not going to be a a lot of pressure to go back to work. The political pressure is going to be, hey, we better stay at home and play it safe. I don't I don't want to I don't want to risk getting covid. So maybe we should make an eight week shutdown or 10 weeks shutdown. But again, this is the kind of nonsense Right. This is what a President Biden is likely to deliver. I mean, the, this is perfect for the Democrats, right? They love to create a situation where more and more people are dependent on government. In a way, this might be, you know, a an end run into the universal basic income because we're really starting the framework where everybody is going to get paid. I don't think whatever money is going to be doled out is going to be limited to people who actually had jobs, right? People who probably don't have any jobs are going to get paid to take a four to six week vacation. I mean, take a vacation from what? From your vacation? I mean, if you don't even have a job anyway, but now you're going to get paid not to work, well, you're already were not working for free. Now, why should you get paid to not do what you were already not doing for nothing? But once you start getting this check, well, you know, you're going to vote for any politician who promises to keep the checks coming. And that's exactly what the Democrats want. They want to buy their votes. And this is the way they do it. But now that everybody thinks that everything is free, 
that as long as the Federal Reserve is printing money, we're getting all this government for free. So why bother to work? Of course, nobody even considers where does all this stuff come from that we consume? It doesn't just magically appear. People have to produce it. That means you have to go to work. So nothing gets produced if we're all taking a vacation. Now, I guess if the rest of the world is still working while we're taking a vacation, they can produce all the stuff. But why are they going to produce all this stuff and just accept our IOUs, our pieces of paper? Because the deficit is going to really explode. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Right. Imagine how much bigger it's going to get. I mean, it's already going through the roof. In fact, we got the... Uh, balance sheet numbers out today from the Fed. I mean, the balance sheet has been going up very, very slowly. Right now, it's at seven spot one seven five trillion. I think that's about as big as I've seen it. But it's no longer just exploding the way it was, you know, initially when they restarted QE. But I think we're getting close to another huge increase in the balance sheet because we're getting ready for another big increase in the debt. Money supply up another 56 billion in the most recent week. Now, again, another reason too, I think the stock market supposedly sold off today is that the Republicans in the Senate are basically saying they don't think that we're gonna get another stimulus uh, between now and Biden becoming president because they're not willing to go for something with as big a price tag as what the Democrats want. And since the election is now behind us, uh, there isn't as much pressure now on the Republicans to come up with something so they can pretend that there's some fiscal uh, responsibility, which again is exactly what they're gonna do to a limited degree when Biden is president. Now, of course, it's possible that if the Republicans don't go along with the stimulus, this could be an issue in these Georgia runoff elections. I mentioned, I think, in the last podcast that there was still a chance that the Democrats could take control of the U.S. Senate. And there is a chance. I'm not sure what it is, maybe 25 percent, maybe a little bit more. I mean, in order for the Democrats to take the Senate, they have to win both of these uh, Senate seats in Georgia. Now, according to the votes, Biden edged out Trump in Georgia. Very, very close election. You would have thought that Georgia would have gone Republican, but it looks like by hook or by crook, it's going to go for Biden. Now, if Georgia could elect Biden as president, could they also elect two Democrats to be senators based on the results of the original election, you would think not, because if, let's say the votes for the libertarian candidate, if those votes had gone to the Republicans, then the Republicans would have won and there would be no runoff. Now, it's you can't say that all of those votes uh, would have gone to Trump. Maybe some of them would have gone to Biden. I think, though, in general, 
that if we had ranked voting, as I've talked about before, most people voting libertarian would pick the Republican as their second choice. But now that those libertarians have an opportunity to go back to the polls and the libertarian candidate is no longer an option, you would think that more of them would vote uh, Republican. But there's going to be a lot of pressure. I mean, I'm hearing about Democrats talking about moving to Georgia, right? That's how important it is. They're encouraging people, move into Georgia now. Just get over there, rent an apartment, get a driver's license, and register to vote, right? You don't have to stay there. You can leave as soon as you finish voting. But just get in there long enough to become a Georgia resident so you can vote for two Democratic senators. And obviously, there's going to be a tremendous amount of money spent between now and that runoff election. I think it's in January, right? So a lot of money is going to be pouring into Georgia. This is like the front line of the battle now for control of the U.S. Senate. As long as the Republicans can pick up one of those two seats, and I think the odds are they'll get both of them, but who knows, but maybe this stimulus, if the Republicans can be positioned as the bad guys, that are standing between everybody and all, you know, this paid vacation or something or all this stimulus money, maybe that could be a catalyst. But they only need to win one. And if they win one, then they've got a 51 to 49 majority. If the Democrats win both, then it's 50-50. But because they have the vice presidency, the Democrats would be able to break the ties. And so, therefore, they would have control of the Senate. When there is no tie, the vice president doesn't mean anything. So as long as the Republicans have 51 seats, they're in control. But if they go down to 50, uh, then the Democrats have control. And things would be a lot worse, I believe, if the Democrats had the Senate. At least if the Republicans have the Senate, uh, they'll slow it down a bit. But look, it's still not going to matter. We're still going off a cliff. The only question is, what speed? Right. How, how much sooner will we go off that cliff? And I think it will be a bit sooner if the Democrats have complete control, as opposed to the Republicans having some ability to slow it down. Hawthorne is a premium tailored personal care brand that's making it easy for guys to feel and smell their best. If you're looking to take your self-care routine to the next level, Hawthorne can help you get the high quality products that you need tailored specifically to your needs. They'll even give you free shipping on your order. And if you decide that you're not satisfied with your product, they'll give you free shipping to send the stuff back. And they'll give you suggestions for some new products based on your feedback. Now, the first thing that you do before you order any of these Hawthorne products is you take the free quiz. I took the quiz, right? And you basically give them all the information about the type of skin that you have, the type of products that you prefer. And then after you give them all the information, they actually come back with a list of products for you to choose from that actually meet your specifications. I've been using these products now for a little over a week. And I got to tell you, I really like them. The smell is very fresh, pure, and very masculine, which is what you want. You don't want something that's all perfumey. You don't want to smell like a girl. You want to have a clean, masculine scent, and these products give you that. I really enjoy using them. So do what I did. Take the Hawthorne quiz today and get started on your personalized self-care routine by going to hawthorne.com and using the promo code GOLD and get a 10% discount on your first purchase. 
That's Hawthorne, H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E dot C-O, promo code GOLD. And while I'm on the topic of all of this debt, I happen to read an article that actually was put out by the guys over at Shift Gold. And the article was about the debt burden on older Americans, Americans 70 and over. And according to the statistics that they cite in their article, between 1999 and 2019, right, that 20-year period, the total debt burden of Americans over the age of 70 increased by 543% to a total of $1.1 trillion. Think about that. 543% gain in debt, $1.1 trillion. These are people over the age of 70. How are people in their 70s taking on all this debt? I mean, how are they even going to live long enough to pay it off? I mean, I'd be interested in how many of these people are taking on mortgages in their 70s, right? Maybe they're refinancing their mortgage. They're taking out a 30-year mortgage. I mean, how many people in their 70s are going to live into their 100s? I mean, I don't even think that's a criteria, right? I mean, you could take out a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, you know, conforming, guaranteed by the government. I don't think there's an age limit on it. So you got all these old people mortgaging their houses. You know, back in the day when we actually had a strong economy, by the time Americans were 70, they burned their mortgage. I mean, that's what home ownership used to be about. It was about paying off your home so that when you got to age 70 or even less than that, even age 60, you, you owned your home free and clear. I mean, that supposedly was how home ownership was the equivalent of savings. It's because when you paid off your mortgage, you no longer had rent, right? You didn't have to write a mortgage check uh, every month to a bank because you owned the property yourself. And now you could retire, right? Because you no longer had a mortgage to service. Well, now not only are Americans in their 70s still have mortgages, in fact, they may be bigger now than they were when they first bought their homes, but they're loaded up with all sorts of other debt. You know, a lot of these guys still have student loans. How do you have student loans in your 70s? I mean, you haven't paid them off yet. Now, some of these people have student loans because they borrowed money to send their kids to college, right? And now they're stuck with their, with their kids' student loans. But some of these guys took on their own student debt later in life, right? They, they decided to go back to school to get another degree, and they took on even more debt. So now they've got student loans, and, and they're in their 70s. Plus, I mean, people have credit card debt. They've got uh, auto loans. Look, you're not supposed to have any debt when you're 70. You're supposed to be completely debt-free by the time you're 70. You're supposed to have assets so that you can retire, right? You have to retire off of the income from your assets. If you're still paying off your debts and you're in your 70s, how could you possibly retire if you got to pay interest? And if you owe money, you have to be owed money. To retire, right? When you retire, you stop working and your money starts working. Your money is working for you. The money that you saved over a lifetime, when you stop working, now you live off your savings and the income on your investments. But if you still have debt by the time you hit 70, then how do you ever retire? You can't. You're a debt slave until the day that you die. You are broke. You know, the irony of all of this is once upon a time, and I'm talking about before 
FDR came around with Social Security, right? The whole idea was the government was going to save people uh, from being impoverished in their old age, right? FDR was going to make sure that worst case scenario, right, if you were an American and you got to your golden years, you weren't broke and you were going to be able to have some Social Security, right? Well, Americans were in much better shape prior to Social Security than they are now. You think there were Americans with all this debt back in the 1930s or 1940s? Not a chance. I mean, maybe Americans, there were some Americans that didn't have adequate savings, but we're talking about people who not only don't even have savings, they have debt, they have liabilities, and they're in their 70s. This is all because of government. Right? It's because of government that nobody saved for their old age because everybody was relying on a government Ponzi scheme, Social Security. But of course, people were taxed to death while they were working and they didn't have enough money left over to save for their retirement. Meanwhile, through the tax code and through artificially low interest rates, everybody was encouraged to borrow and borrow. Keep on spending, keep on borrowing, lever up, take out a loan, take out a home equity loan, use your credit cards, right? Borrow money to go to school. And so now, because of all these government guarantees, they made it so easy for people to borrow way more money than they can ever repay. Americans arrive at retirement age, not only without any retirement savings, but loaded up with debt. Right, in positions that they never would have been in uh, before FDR and government right, started to say, hey, it's our responsibility to make sure that people don't arrive at their old age uh, without adequate resources. Well, now, because of government, everybody is broke. I mean, not everybody, but a significant percentage of Americans uh, are broke because of government policy. You take away all those government subsidies, you take away Social Security, you take away government guaranteed loans and artificially low interest rates, and more Americans would have saved up and, 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 and been able to retire. And of course, if you didn't have this huge government that was taxing everybody all the years they were working, instead of sending money to the government to support government spending, they would have had excess money to you know, put away for their own retirement. But this is really some shocking statistics. But it also shows you how weak the economy is. Because if we actually had a strong economy, do you think 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds would have to go into debt? No. Why are so many older Americans being forced to take on debt? Because they're broke. Because they can't afford to survive without the debt. But also, what are the odds that this debt is going to be repaid? Pretty slim because people are going to die. And a lot of the debt is going to be discharged with death, right? Because when, when someone's dead, you can't, you know, get any money from them. Obviously, all the student loans, right? The student loans die with the borrower. So if the person dies, um, obviously, they don't have to pay back their student loans. Now, some of the loans, to the extent that you took out a mortgage loan and you die, I mean, the loan is still tied to the property. Uh, and, and some of the debts could still go to the estates. But a lot of these people that have all this debt have no estate. So no one is going to pay it back, which means the lenders are going to be on the hook for all this debt when the 70 or 80 year olds end up dying and they still have all this unpaid debt. So this is a huge you know, ticking time bomb for the lenders who aren't going to get repaid. But it also shows you that all this talk about this vibrant, booming economy is a bunch of nonsense. I mean, 
from 1999 to 2019. That's a 20-year period to have all this extra debt for the oldest Americans who should be completely out of debt. I mean, yes, you can accumulate debt when you're young, right? You can accumulate debt in your 20s and your 30s uh, when you're just getting started. But by the time you're 70, it should all be paid off. I mean, otherwise, I mean, there's no no way to retire. But th this is the bubble, this huge bubble economy that's completely supported by debt when even the oldest Americans are having to go into debt. Now, what does that tell you about the, the younger people, right? I mean, how much debt uh, the millennials are having to take on now to survive if even their grandparents can't even survive without borrowing money? I want to update everybody, though, on my lawsuit against Nine Entertainment. Remember, I think I mentioned on a previous podcast that I had sent a letter or I had my lawyers send a letter to Nine Entertainment giving them the opportunity to retract uh, the statements that they made, the false statements that they made about me and about Euro Pacific Bank. Also, of course, giving them the opportunity to provide some evidence to support their false statements. Because obviously, if they could prove to me that the statements aren't false, well, then I'd be foolish to sue, right? Why sue them for defamation if what they're saying is true? So it's like, hey, show me your evidence and, you know, I won't sue you or apologize, retract the statements publicly, apologize, and then I won't sue you either. Even though I still have some losses, just, you know, just admit that you made it all up and that, that you're wrong. Well, of course, they're not doing either. They're not supplying me with any proof of their claims, which of course I know they can't do because the proof doesn't exist. But the fact that they don't have the proof means that they know that they're lying. I mean, I doubt they're just sitting on all this proof and they're just going to surprise me with it a couple of years from now when this case actually goes to trial. In fact, again, I think if they actually had any real evidence, they would have presented it during, the, during their 60-minute uh, story. Right, if they actually knew about real criminals that I was banking, don't you think they would have mentioned them? You think they would have to make up a guy that had a 24-year-old drug conviction that wasn't even available to the public? I mean, if I really was banking uh, drug traffickers, don't you think they could have found an actual drug trafficker that had an account at my bank? Or, you know, or a guy that actually had an account at my bank before he had a conviction? Remember, they found this one guy who's had his account closed two years before he actually had a criminal record? How was my, my, my compliance department supposed to see into the future and deny this guy an account because in the future, four years later, he was gonna plead guilty to a crime? How would my guys know that? But you know, they were smart enough after looking at just half a dozen transactions, they shut the guy's account down before he can even do $75,000 worth of transactions, right? That's it, that's the best they got? These, the two people that they highlighted in their show actually prove how good my compliance department is, that we don't bank any criminals, that at any sign of any kind of suspicion, we shut down accounts. That's the best they got. So I don't think they were saving the best for the courtroom. I think they already put forward all the evidence they had, which was nothing. Since they had no actual evidence, they had to make some stuff up. But I guess for whatever reason, they don't want to admit that they were wrong. They just want to dig in their heels and they just want to fight, right? Because they're not going to uh, withdraw uh, their, their allegations or retract. Actually, they didn't really say that. I gave them a week 
uh, to reply. And the reply I got is that they're considering what I wrote and uh, they'll get back to me in due course, which of course is a no reply. I mean, I said, look, you got a certain time limit that you have to do something. I'm not just giving you an open-ended opportunity to decide what you want to do. Decide. I mean, they know that the information about me is false, so they just have to decide whether they want me to prove that it's false in court in two years or just admit that it's false now. Now, you know, just like a lot of politicians, they like to kick the can down the road and deal with the problem in the future. The problem is, just like with politicians and the government, this problem is going to be a lot bigger in two years because I will have lost a substantial amount of money because of the blemish to my reputation in the banking industry. Because remember, in the banking industry, it doesn't matter whether I'm guilty or innocent. The only thing that matters is that somebody's made an allegation. Even if the allegation has no credibility whatsoever, if the source making the allegation is credible, that's all that counts. And so it doesn't matter if 60 Minutes made the whole thing up, right? Or if uh, The Age made the whole thing up, the fact that a major Australian news organization claims that I'm doing all these bad things, then whether I'm doing them or not doesn't even matter. Nobody cares. It's the mere accusation that is causing all the problems. So if that accusation is going to be out there for a couple of years, who knows how much financial damage it can ultimately do to me. And of course, now they're on the hook for all that money if they want to wait two years and actually make me take them to court where they have to prove that their statements are true. If they can prove they're true, prove it right now and I don't even have to bother to sue them. The fact that they don't want to try to prove it means they know that it's false. So that's where we are right now. Um, so I'm probably going to be going forward with this lawsuit uh, because they're not going to retract, although who knows, uh, maybe in the next few days they could do that. But so far, there's no evidence that that's going to happen. And so I'm going to have to proceed uh, with this lawsuit. Hopefully, uh, the damage to my reputation is limited uh, to the bank, uh, but but who knows? Going to finish up the podcast again talking about Bitcoin, which is at new highs as I'm speaking. We're at 16,250, and I think we've been a little higher than that too. I think we almost got to 16,400 as I've been recording this podcast, and of course, it could be even higher by the time anybody actually listens to it. You know, one of the catalysts that's really been driving this move up in Bitcoin was the announcement some time ago by PayPal that it was going to be including uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, and a few others, I, I forget which ones, on their platform so that people who have PayPal accounts can buy Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies and hold them uh, in their PayPal wallet. Now, the announcement of this was very bullish, right? Everybody was buying uh, Bitcoin based on uh, this announcement. Well, today is when PayPal actually allowed its you know, customers to buy Bitcoin. So this is the first time that you could actually do it. So they were talking about doing it and today is they rolled it out. And of course, it's not just this. I mean, there's been constant pumping of Bitcoin every day since. I mean, I watch CNBC and I see guest after guest coming on, bullish, bullish, bullish about Bitcoin. Rarely ever do you see anybody who has a negative thing to say about Bitcoin on CNBC. And I'm constantly seeing these grayscale ads. They continue to run on heavy rotation 
uh, trying to get people to buy uh, Grayscale, which means, of course, buy Bitcoin because that's what they own or some other cryptocurrencies. But if you actually look at what PayPal is doing, the whole thing is a gimmick. It's a non-event because let's say you buy Bitcoin at PayPal. You can't do anything with that Bitcoin except sell it from your PayPal account. You can't transfer it to another wallet, right? It's not really like your Bitcoin where you could do whatever you want with it, where you can give it to somebody else. It's stuck there. It's on the PayPal platform. In fact, you can't transfer any Bitcoin in to your PayPal account. You have to buy the Bitcoin through your PayPal account, and then you have to sell it through your PayPal account. So if you want to buy something using PayPal and you've got Bitcoin there, well, you can sell your Bitcoin and get dollars. But PayPal is not taking your Bitcoin and transferring it to the merchant that you're buying something from. No, they're selling your Bitcoin and they're sending the merchant currency. So all they're allowing their customers to do, if you have a PayPal account, you can take that money and turn it into Bitcoin. And then when you want to use your PayPal account, you need to sell your Bitcoin to get your dollars back. Big deal. Who's going to do that? I mean, why would all of these PayPal customers suddenly decide to gamble with their PayPal money and speculate in Bitcoin? Because when people put money into their PayPal wallet, they're putting it there to pay for stuff, right? It's not save pal it's paypal right people aren't using paypal as a long-term savings vehicle in fact a lot of people don't even put money into their paypal wallet they just link it to their bank account or they link it to a debit or a credit card they're not putting huge cash deposits but to the extent that some people are parking cash in paypal they're spending it that cash isn't just staying there for years and years they're spending it and then they're replacing it with new money that they earn and then they're spending that. So why would all these people who are using PayPal to buy stuff, to pay for stuff, why would they suddenly use their PayPal wallet to speculate in Bitcoin? Makes no sense. I mean, if they want to speculate in Bitcoin, just go to Coinbase, open up a wallet there because at least then you have the Bitcoin. You can do whatever it is people want to do with Bitcoin. You have your private key, right? You can transfer your Bitcoin uh, to somebody overseas, right? You can make these international payments. You, you know, you have some amount of privacy. You don't have any of that. You give up all of the supposed functionality or benefits of Bitcoin when you buy your Bitcoin through your PayPal account, the only thing you're doing when you're buying Bitcoin in your PayPal wallet is you're gambling on Bitcoin, right? I mean, it can easily go down between the time you put the money in and the time you want to buy something, especially if a lot of people, and I don't know what the average number of days between when somebody deposits money into a PayPal wallet, how long it sits there before they spend it. I would say maybe weeks, it's not years. So who the hell knows what's gonna happen to Bitcoin any given week? The price could easily drop. So it doesn't make sense that people who are using PayPal to pay bills and to buy stuff are gonna become short-term Bitcoin speculators, right? And they're certainly not gonna become long-term holders through PayPal. If they wanted to do that, 
they would already do that at a more efficient platform than PayPal, where they have the other uh, supposed benefits of owning Bitcoin. So this whole thing is a bunch of hype. It's more pump so that the smarter money can dump. And I believe that that's what's going on. I mean, there are people that are obviously laughing all the way to the bank as they're selling into this Bitcoin rally slowly as more people are getting sucked into this thing by all this hype, all these commercials, all these people coming on television, touting how this thing is going to keep on going up. It's digital gold. It's all a bunch of nonsense. But you can see that in looking at the PayPal news because the whole thing amounts to nothing. But they're, they're promoting it as if it's a big deal. And again, PayPal, the guys in PayPal probably behind this, they're probably making some money selling their own Bitcoin. Uh, but the public, you know, is whoever's getting suckered into it. But a lot of it, too, is designed to keep the hodlers on board, right? The real long-term Bitcoin believers, the guys that want to sell at these high prices, have to make sure that the little guys don't get out, right? The people who have been hodling, that they, that they don't sell. And so the way they keep them in there is they keep dangling this pie in the sky nonsense about $100,000 Bitcoin, million dollar Bitcoin. And so this is part of that. This is part of the fear of missing out, right? That the Bitcoin pumpers want to make sure uh, that the vast majority of the Bitcoin holders don't sell because they want to sell and they don't want the competition. They need more bids that they can hit. And this is all part of that big pump and dump. Oh,